Okay, let's just bow our hearts as we turn to God's word together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come together and study your word. And Lord, we just pray now that you open our understanding. Lord, unblock our ears. Lord, so often we are stubborn in hearing things from you. Lord, we are so often influenced by the things of this world. But Father, this morning we pray that you would allow us to see things spiritually. Lord, we recognize that some of us, so much of our life is based upon the material things of this life. And yet, Lord, the real existence, as your word reveals, is that which is spiritual. And so, Father, just help us this morning to grow a little more in knowledge and grace. Lord, help us to understand these things. And, Lord, learn how to apply them to our lives, not just to acquire knowledge, but to see what we should do with that knowledge and, Lord, how it should affect the way we live. And so, Lord, we just give you this time, Father. I pray you take my words and use them, Father, to encourage and edify us this morning. We just give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come as far as the Great Tribulation. Now, of course, the book of Revelation is all about the judgments that God is going to bring upon this world. Certainly from chapter 6 onwards, the opening chapter is an introduction. Chapters 2 and 3, we deal with the, the church um, and it's a multifaceted um, lesson um, that's given to the church in chapters 2 and 3. There's lessons to the individuals, there's lessons collectively to the church at large, but there's also hidden within that a prophetic plan, if you like, of the history of the church. Now, of course, from the first century, they may not have seen or understood it, but as we look back in time, we can see now that that which is laid down in those chapters has mapped out the history of the church in incredible detail. Then we move on to chapters 4 and 5, and then we see the church in heaven being taken out of this world before God brings his judgment. And then we get on to this section that we've been looking at. This uh, The first part, Jesus himself refers to as the beginning of sorrows, uh, in Matthew 24, he gives it that label as things start to really heat up, as it were, on the earth. Now, part of the reason that we see this, uh, the fact that Jesus refers to the beginning of sorrows is because God's wrath is poured out in measure. And we've seen that already. There's a, a third of the rivers, a third of the trees, a third of the oceans, all those kind of things that are, judgment is brought upon them, but it's in measure. And God does that because he wants to give people the opportunity to repent. But now we come on, we've looked in the last few chapters, the parenthetical chapters, chapters are inserted to give us a little bit more information. So chronologically, in a sense, we've been following it through. We then get to chapter 11, and it kind of goes back to the beginning of the three and a half years. And then we get details and information, and that really carries on the way through. 11, 12 is an incredible chapter that gives us a summary of all of history, in a sense, um, from the perspective of the seed, this promise that God would send a deliverer, somebody who would rescue humanity and restore us to that relationship with God. Chapter 13, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, actually then gives us this uh, introduction to Antichrist and the false prophet, as we commonly call them. Um, these two individuals who are going to come onto the world scene. And in chapter 14, it's really that prelude to wrath. Uh, it's getting ready as everything starts to heat up. And actually there's a number of things in chapter 14 that we just get a little snapshot of things that then are expounded in the following chapters. So that's as, as far as we've got at the moment. <clears throat> we've seen at this point as we move into chapter 15 this morning, the Antichrist world government is now established at this point in time. Israel has fled to the wilderness of Edom, which is modern-day Jordan, to escape the worldwide persecution at the hand of Antichrist. Interestingly enough, we're told in Scripture in the book of Daniel that the government, the worldwide government and Antichrist won't have any jurisdiction there. 
for the remaining believers, that's those who have been converted since chapter 6, because of course once the church is taken out of the way, a lot of people are suddenly going to realise that us weird old Christians are actually right. Because they're going to realise that actually that which the Bible had been saying was true. And it's going to be an incredible shock to the world when that happens. And there will be many people that will come to know the Lord. We've already seen that there's two witnesses that are sent to preach from Jerusalem. There's also going to be 144,000 Jews who, during this period of time, seemingly will go out and evangelize and other things that God will organize to allow everybody to hear the gospel. So at this point, there won't be anybody that will be able to claim ignorance. Often atheists and critics of the Bible would say, yeah, but what about the person that lives on the remote island? It's not fair because they won't get to hear. Well, don't worry, God's covered that. It's not your problem. Your problem is your own eternity. So the church has gone, the remaining believers, those that have come to know the Lord since that point, will now be under extreme persecution from Antichrist, and they will end up being martyred. We also, at this point, as we move into chapter 15, the false religious system that had dominated and manipulated the world for so long has been destroyed by Antichrist's ten kings, and we'll see that in detail as we move on to chapter 17 and 18 in a couple of weeks' time. So that's really where we've got to so far. Now, this in a sense is Satan's moment of glory. This is the bit he's been looking forward to. To try and get the world to worship him and eradicate, effectively, God and the Bible. Satan hates the Bible because it exposes him. Of course, he hates all those that would follow after God. Interestingly, there's an interesting uh, uh, comment or uh, example that we see in First Kings um, there we find that after David, or when David is old, he's uh, in his deathbed, Solomon had already been named by David as to be the, his successor, the one who's going to become king. But this individual, Adonijah, another one of David's sons, decides that he wants to be king. Now, it's interesting because <clears throat> if we read, I'm just going to read to you from First Kings chapter uh, 1, verse 5. It says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying... I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. But we find that Adonijah's ego trip was brought to a very swift and sudden end because David then announces that Solomon is going to become king. And Solomon is paraded through the city and effectively Adonijah realizes that his life's in jeopardy for making this incredible assumption. Well, that of course is a model of exactly what will happen. Because at this point, Satan is going to effectively say, well, I want to be king. I want to be the one that's worshipped and ruled. But we've already seen, and if you remember where we left off in chapter 10, there was a mighty angel that put one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and declared effectively, time is up. You know. And then, if you remember, we move on, and in chapter 11, we have this great declaration. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever. So just as with Adonijah back in First Kings, Satan is going to have his tenure rudely interrupted when the rightful king will return and establish the throne of David. So Satan, just for now, thinks he's got it as he wants it. Of course, Satan can read these scriptures, he could look at prophecy, but he thinks he's going to, he's going to win, he's going to defeat God. I, it's such a, a foolish notion. But in preparation for that for, in preparation for the second coming, the earth is now about to be purged and got ready for Jesus to come back and claim title to the earth once and for all. Now, this 
in a sense, is one of the most anticipated moments in Scripture where we are in our study this morning. There's so much that dovetails to this point. It's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that's used in a number of ways and occasions, but it specifically does refer to this last three and a half years. We'll look at the timescale map and things in a second. But also, this is the, the part that Jesus refers to as great tribulation. So this is the last three and a half year period. It's the moment when God's wrath is going to be poured out on this world without restraint. And the wickedness of man is going to be punished in God's righteous anger. And we're going to see that the blood of the millions of his children who have been killed throughout the ages will be avenged. You see, God is a just God. And all the injustices that have been committed throughout history have got to be paid for. God isn't just going to turn a blind eye to those things or forget those things. You know, we understand statistically now every hour about 11 or 12 Christians are put to death for their faith. There was more Christians that were martyred in the last hundred years than in all of the centuries prior to that. And that is now being eclipsed because of what's going on around the world. Christians are not a very popular group in most places of the world. We're seen as being the troublemakers. I don't even, you may have seen the news this week how Christian groups have been doing um, a lot of community work. There's a thing on the, the, the local news this week. Um, and it was incredible because already there's people kicking up a fuss and saying, but this isn't right, Christians shouldn't be able to be involved, they shouldn't be doing these things. And of course, what happens if Christians start to share what they believe? And there's other people on the other side are saying, well, yeah, but we need their help, we need their support. And one individual even came out and said, uh, a member from the House of Lords, that actually Christians are the glue that is holding the fabric of society together. It's an interesting thing going on, how, you know, any other group, if they did something for the community and so on, people would be pleased. Christians do it, and it's like, well, it's got to be wrong, there's got to be an agenda, and of course we want to share our faith. But we're also mandated to do good works. Well, as I say, many, many millions and millions of Christians throughout the ages have been put to death for their faith and we're going to see their blood avenged as we go into this chapter. Now, just to give you the overview again, this seven-year period documented in a number of places in Scripture. Prior to the beginning, the church will be raptured, is the word we use, uh, translated, taken out of this world. Then we begin this time, the beginning of sorrows, and we've seen already in chapter 6 of Revelation, these seven seals. And then before the seventh is a parenthesis, and then we get to the final seventh seal, and then we get the six trumpets, and before the seventh is a parenthesis again, and then we get to that one. The seven thunders, we're not even told. John is told not to reveal to us what these angelic beings are uttering. And then we finally get to where we are now. Now, I'm not saying categorically it's neatly divided into these blocks, but somewhere along this kind of division is where we're seeing these things. So we're somewhere now into this period of time. How far along this line in the three and a half years we are, I don't know. Time will tell, obviously. Um, but we're at this point now where these vials are going to be poured out, or bowls of wrath are going to be poured out upon the earth. So let's jump into chapter 15, and we read verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvellous. Just just for a minute, stop and think here. Because John has seen some incredible things. And now he's saying, I saw another sign, but this one was really, really something to behold. The Greek word that we have there 
is megas thermustrous. Uh, literally translated, can be rendered as exceedingly great and to be wondered at. It's maybe we don't sometimes get the import in, in our English. But John is saying, look, I saw something, this was really, really something. And that which he sees is this. He says, seven angels, which that's not the, the thing, but having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. In other words, the idea is that the completion, that the full outpouring of God's wrath will be completed once these seven angels have completed their tasks. You see, even though we're all too well acquainted with the wickedness of man, and you're only going to need to look at a newspaper to see that these days, the ferocity of the judgments to be poured out may well cause us just to stop and catch our breaths. And if you are a normal human being at this point, you'll read through, and I guarantee you there's going to be that moment where you start to think, isn't this a bit harsh? Isn't this a bit excessive? Well, you need to be reminded that God is a faithful God. God keeps his promises, but he keeps his promises not just in regard to the blessings, but in regard to the judgments as well. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses records this. He says, Ascribe you greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. And all his ways are judgment, or all his ways are just. They're right. He says, A God of truth, without iniquity. Just and right is he. So, just as God's mercy is unfathomable to us, so is his wrath. Psalm 119, verse 68, tells us this, God is good and does good. You know, sometimes things happen and we don't understand what God is doing, but just because we don't understand, it doesn't give us just cause to say that God is wrong or God is unjust or unfair. God is good and does good. That's God's very nature is goodness. God cannot do anything that is not good. And even in bringing this judgment, God is good. You know, a good parent won't just allow their child to do something that is wrong and turn a blind eye. A good parent will discipline that child because they love that child. Well, throughout the ages, God has tried to reason with man. We read in the book of Isaiah, God says, come, let us reason together. So many people think the Christian faith is just this blind leap in the dark. It's nothing of the sort. There's a real solid intellectual foundation to what we believe. It's based in evidence. It's based in facts. Of course there's faith. Faith isn't just a blind leap in the dark. Faith is a logical conclusion based upon the information that we're given. And we do take a number of things on faith, but not without good reason. God is good and does good. So the judgment that is going to be meted out now is going to be in direct Portion to the crime. We pro- the problem is we have the tendency to play down sin, so we make out that sin is not as bad. We will try and justify it, don't we? You know, if anybody catches you doing something that's wrong, you're always trying to explain why it's not that bad, or you'll compare yourself to somebody else. I'm sure this won't apply to the ladies, but some of the gents you may have had at times where you've been driving on a motorway and you've gone a little over the speed limit. And maybe your wife will remind you that you're going faster than you should. And of course you'll then justify it by pointing to the other drivers. You know, we all do it in all sorts of things. We all try and justify. But you see, God is holy. That's a hard concept for us to get our heads around. But if you read the book of Leviticus, you'll see there, it's a kind of a, it's a wonderful book and yet it's quite a hard book to read because you see a lot of bloodshed. A lot of animals being sacrificed. A lot of people don't understand it. 
But you see, once you get your head in that book and understand what it's all about, you see just how abhorrent sin is to a holy God. That's why those sacrifices are there. Because God says that there has to be atonement for sin, a covering, a payment. Rather than taking our lives, God would accept the life of an innocent substitute in our place. And of course, ultimately, that all points forward to Jesus. But you see, remember too, as we go into this section now, that God has gone to extraordinary lengths so that no one would have to endure what is about to follow. John carries on and says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So now we are formally introduced to the harpers. You remember back in chapter 14, we had harpers harping with their harps. So again, we don't want to harp on about that, but that's what they were doing. And now we're told who they are. They're these individuals that have come out of the tribulation. Those that have been martyred by Antichrist, put to death because they wouldn't comply, because they wouldn't take his image or wouldn't worship his image or take his mark or his name. And now we see them in heaven, standing on this sea of glass, but Again, this sea of glass mingled with fire. It just speaks of judgment and the preparation of this judgment. Now, interestingly enough, it seems at this point the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. I'll come back to that point in just a moment. But prior to the beginning of the tribulation, the church will be taken out. We then see the two witnesses that are taken out, raptured, taken to heaven from earth, supernaturally. We then see the 144,000 also seemingly raptured, taken out of this world. God is gradually taking out all of those who believe and trust in him. And now finally, the last of these believers, those who have not bowed the knee to Antichrist, will be martyred. And at that point, when the last one of those has been killed, I don't believe any more individual will be saved for the rest of this tribulation time. I believe this now is the fullness of the Gentiles being gathered in. In Romans 11.25, Paul said there, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, what Paul was saying is that, of course, some of the Jews believed. That was the early church. The early church was a Jewish group of believers. Gradually, the gospel went out to the Gentile world too. So, part of Israel, those that refused to believe, that refused to accept that Jesus was their Messiah, they were blinded. God has put this kind of veil over their eyes they wouldn't see for a defined period of time. It's to allow the Gentiles to come in. And so we read here that there's going to come a time once the Gentiles have been gathered in that all Israel will be saved. Those who previously rejected Jesus will come to know him. Now, It's no coincidence that at this time, whilst the last of those tribulation martyrs come out, Israel will be in hiding in Edom, as we said earlier. And it will be during that time, and I believe the the book of Joel provides us an incredible prophetic model of all of this. It's during that time that Israel will cry out to Jesus. They will realize that he is their Messiah. And they will repent. Zechariah records for us that they will look upon him whom they've pierced and they will mourn. And that will occur during this time. So just as Paul documents here for us, Israel have been blinded. 
And then the Gentiles now have been coming in for the last 2,000 years or so. And that will come to an end at this point. The last of the Gentiles to believe will be during this beginning of the Great Tribulation as Antichrist is martyring these believers. And once the last of those has come in, Israel's eyes will be opened. And of these believers, well, they have a, a reason to sing. Notice what they sing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. They're taking the the very best expressions of worship they can and saying, Great and marvellous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. I mean, this is incredible, because they've just endured incredible things, things that we may not even begin to imagine what they'll have to go through, but they declare that God is just. You see, I'm sure they'll recognize that they'd had the opportunity to believe and they'd reject it. But then after the church had gone, after the tribulation had begun, they realized the truth of these things and they put their trust in Jesus Christ and were saved. Interesting, there's no mention of the the achievement of the martyrs here. It's all about Jesus. The book, if you remember, is the revelation of Jesus. It's all focusing upon him. Just and true are thy ways, thou king of the saints. He says, who should not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify the name, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Now, God's judgments are going to be revealed, made clear. You know, but how wonderful now for these believers who didn't know Jesus during the church age. They possibly never went to a a worship service like we are here this morning. Maybe never went to a a Bible-believing church. Probably never had any real fellowship to speak of. They're now standing before the throne in heaven. All their suffering and troubles are behind them forever. No wonder they sing. But just stop a moment, because doesn't that make you think a little bit about what we have now? Shouldn't that work serve to be a wake-up call for us? You know, how often do Christians moan and complain about church and the things we have to do and so on? You know, how much do you think these believers would love to have attended a worship service or love to have attended a midweek Bible study or a prayer meeting without fear of being killed? You know, they will probably never get the freedom to worship on a Sunday like we do or stay in fellowship after the meeting. You know, there's going to be a real price on the head for defying Antichrist. And yet, just like Jesus, we read in Hebrews 12 that Jesus... Because of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And these individuals also will recognize that that which is ahead is worth going through what they have to go through. You know, it should just be a little bit of a wake-up call and maybe just ask ourselves how real our faith is. You know, do we despise the things of this world or are the things of this world still the the number one thing in our life? You know, a good way of testing where your heart is, where your loyalty are, is just look what you do, what you spend your time doing. What, what is it that you enjoy most in life? If you were to take Christ out of your life, how would your life be any different? Would it change at all? Or is Christ the number one in your life? You know, do we still love the things of this world a little more than we should? Interestingly, after returning from the island of Patmos, after receiving this revelation, John wrote his the three epistles, and we think as well the Gospel of John. This is love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, 
and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. You know, if we're reading these things in Revelation, they should stir us. And if they don't, just check your pulse. You see, we should be wanting to, as we read in Ephesians, we should be wanting to fellowship more as we see the day approaching. We should be, as it says, Ephesians 4.16, edifying each other in love. We should be encouraging each other and rejoicing in our like precious faith, as Peter says. You know, honestly, I don't get it when Christians don't want to spend time with other Christians. You know, we have something so wonderful to, to talk about, to share about. Again, just look at what they, they're singing in this song. There's some beauty here and just, just a wonder on their part. As I said already, they sing Moses' song and the song of the Lamb. And they're going to praise God for his works, for his justice, his truthfulness, for his might and power, for his holiness. And because now is the time that his judgments are going to be revealed. So we carry on, verse 5. And after that I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, having their breast girdle with golden girdles. Now John says again that he looked. Now the words, the Greek word here is edo. It just simply carries the idea of understanding. It's almost as if John is saying, I looked and now I get it. I understand what's going on. You know, sometimes we use that kind of, oh, I see, not to talk about what we physically see with our eyes, but what we actually now understand conceptually. And I think John is saying the same thing, is that after that, I see, I get it. And as he's looking on, he sees the the temple of, the tabernacle of testimony is referred to here, in heaven open. You know, in Exodus, Moses was given the detailed instructions of a, a tent, basically, to build. We call it the tabernacle. The, t- the tabernacle. It was a place of meeting where God said he would meet with the people. Well, that was modelled on the real thing, which is in heaven. And it's as if John now sees this tabernacle in heaven open, and it all suddenly seems to make sense to him at this point. Now, it's interesting, this temple, uh, temple is mentioned 15 times in the book of Revelation, but after chapter 4. Why is that? Is it significant? Yeah, I think it's very significant. Do you remember what chapters 2 and 3 are all about? The church. You see, the temple speaks and always has done, or temple or tabernacle, because, again, they started with this tent tabernacle. Eventually, when David moved this tabernacle to the city of Jerusalem, eventually they made a temple instead to replace it, effectively. So, this idea of tabernacle or temple is simply speaking of God's dwelling with man. That's the reason God had told Moses to build it in the first place. And that's why it's interesting, because we're told seven times in the New Testament that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are God's dwelling point, that our bodies become this place where God will come and dwell with us. Interestingly, if you compare Exodus chapter 25 to 31, you've got seven chapters. And by the way, if you think we're mentioning seven a lot, you will find sevens throughout the Bible, and particularly throughout the book of Revelation. God chooses to do things in certain number groups. Seven always has reference to completeness. Interestingly, though, you look at those seven chapters and they detail, there's a lot of details. If you're reading through the Bible, I encourage you every year to start in Genesis, read through the Bible. Every year. It's a wonderful experience. You learn so much and you gain so much insight into God's plan. But those chapters, in all honesty, they're a bit heavy going. 
Because they've just given details and measurements. Why so much information? Because it's all about God's relationship with us. When you look at Genesis, you've got two chapters that tell us about creation. That's it. That, that's what God did. That's how he did it. Let's move on. That's not to say it's not important, but God's relationship with us is far more important than those other things. In Revelation 21, 22, it's interesting because in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, John, when we get there, sees this. He says, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You see, something changes by the time we get there, and there is no need for a place where we can meet with God, because we are with God. That would be wonderful, beyond anything we can possibly imagine. Now, again, this place is called the Tabernacle of the Testimony. What is that in reference to? Well, another way we could refer to it is a tabernacle of witness. That's what a testimony is. It's a witness statement in a sense. So what is the heavenly temple a witness to? Well, just as the earthly tabernacle that Moses is given the information to build is in a sense a witness or a testimony to Jesus, every detail of the earthly tabernacle pointed to Jesus in some way. I'm sure this is the same. But I think there's something else here. Because the question is, what are these seven angels doing in there? Why were these angels in the temple that John there can see them coming out of the temple? Well, I just think it's interesting because a number of times in Scripture we're told that God keeps records on all sorts of things. In Psalm 56 verse 8, we read there, Thou tellest my wanderings, thou puts my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? God counts your tears. When you cry, when we're sorrowful, when the pressures of this world get too much, God sees all those things. And God even counts your tears. God understands our suffering, our pain. He created us. In Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned as, yet there was none of them. In other words, the psalmist is saying at that point that before we were born, God knew every part of us. As God was forming us in the womb, God knew every part of our being. And he kept a record, he kept an inventory in a sense. So, just a a thought here. Could it be that they've gone in to consult God's records? The testimonies that have been recorded regarding every cruel and vicious and merciless and barbaric and ungodly act that have been committed against his saints. I think it's highly probable that these angels have gone to get these testimonies, these documents if you like, outlining and detailing everything that has been done against God's people. So they're not just going to go out and bring judgment randomly. You see, one of the things that we find uh, in regard to Israel, God says that he will repay their sin double. Now, you need to understand the, the context of the way that's used. For Israel, God is saying not that he's going to give them times two for their punishment, but just as when you look into a mirror, you see a double, you see a reflection of yourself. God is saying to Israel that he would repay their sin in exact likeness. The same for us, the same for the people in this world. Of course, for us, our sin was put upon Jesus. But for the people on the earth who have committed these things, it will be an exact payback for that which they've committed. Another point to highlight here, I just think it's interesting, in verse 6 we're told that these angelic beings are clothed in pure and white linen. 
Now, I just think that's interesting because it's the only time in Scripture that I can find that anything other than man is referenced in regard to wearing clean and white linen and so on. It's always seen as being something that's worn by, by saints or in reference to man. In Revelation 19 verse 8 we're told that the fine linen represents the righteousness of the saints. If that's true, why are these angels wearing this fine linen? Well, I would just speculate, but I think it could be because they're going out representing us, representing all those who have given their lives through the ages. They're representing man. They're going as ambassadors in that sense on this mission that God has given them. Let's carry on. In verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So we're now seeing these vials, this very unpleasant stuff, whatever it is, is now given to these angelic beings and they get ready to come and pour it out. So we move into chapter 16. Verse 1, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Okay, again, just remember that God is just, God is righteous, nothing's happening here. Just out of a vengeful payback, this is all meted out according to God's righteous justice. Again, much of what we've seen has been a warning up to this point, coupled with the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. God has given everybody the possibility to repent. Those who reject have done so willingly and knowingly. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel tells us. And Peter reminds us that God is long-suffering. He's held off his judgment for a long time, not willing that any should perish. So again, we're looking now at this period, as we've said already, and these judgments, these bowls of wrath are going to be poured out. out. The first vial or first bowl, whichever translation you use, but the same thing, this, this dish, this cup, full of wrath, is poured out. The first one, we see grievous sores on those who receive the mark of the beast. Verse 2 tells us, And the first went out and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. Now, noisome, if you're not sure, it simply means injurious, something that is really very unpleasant. Interestingly enough, um, we've got two words there, this noisome and grievous. Um, both of those words can be translated as wicked. So you could have a, a wicked, wicked sore, a really bad uh, me- medical condition. Now, boils and sores usually are a sign of an inward corruption. It's a problem under the surface. Well, that's exactly what's going on here, but in a spiritual sense. You see, these are people that have got a problem under the surface, uh, and the problem really goes right down to the heart to that which we choose to trust and follow and believe in and so on. These sores are clearly going to be very painful. Now, some of you know uh, Dr. Vij Sidira, um years ago used to come along to the fellowship. Um, Vij is a, a medical doctor, um, surgeon, and uh, he's written a number of medical textbooks, and one of them is on boils and sores and things. I've actually got a copy of this if you want. It's a great read if anybody wants to have a look. And it just goes through all the different types. of I, I don't know what it's going to be like. But during that time of tribulation, for those that have taken the mark of the beast, suddenly they break out of these sores. Now, some people have speculated that it might be because they have something implanted under their skin in their right hand or their forehead, maybe a microchip, because you remember the mark of the beast is going to be used for buying and selling, and it may be that they'll replace credit cards. Maybe that will happen. 
And it could be then, it's been speculated that what happens if they burst and whatever's inside these things then starts to cause cancerous sores on the, on the skin. I don't know. We're not going to know. But it's not going to be pleasant. The second vial then, we read, and this one, the sea turns to blood and all that in it, that's in it will die. And this is kind of a really hard one to fathom, to imagine this kind of happening. But let's just, just look at the, the text and we'll talk a little bit. The, the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. Just to clarify the word that's used there for soul, um, because animals don't have souls, biblically. Um, man has a soul, but animals don't have souls. Um, the, the word in the Greek is pneuma, it means breath. That's the, really the implication. Every thing that had breath um, died. Why the sea? If God's pouring out judgment, wouldn't you have thought that he would have gone for maybe something else? But God goes for the sea. Well, it's interesting because as you start to consider this, ever since the earliest times, the sea has been essential for trade, for the moving of goods and the produce around the world. And of course, as a result of this, materialism has become one of the greatest obstacles to men seeking after God. The sea has become essential to the world economy, carrying the bulk of international trade. Uh, Apparently 80% of the world's import-export trade in terms of tonnage, is carried by sea. If trade by sea suddenly becomes impossible, it's going to radically alter the way the world does business. We're told that the sea becomes blood. Now, how God will do this, I don't know, but there's a really serious implication, and that is, it's going to have a significant effect on the oxygen content on the earth. Up to 85% of our oxygen comes from the oceans. We go out and breathe every day without giving it much thought. At this time, when this happens, even breathing is going to be seen something with a little bit of a luxury. You know, it's just interesting. You look at all these, these things start to come together. God is not just randomly doing things. There's a real pattern and plan to the way that God brings these judgments in, bringing down man's attempts to Reject him. And, and really, trade very much, we could link it back to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. You see, God had originally intended men to, to live in their areas, in their communities, their families, whatever. But Nimrod decides he's going to bring everybody together. And really, we have the first world empire starting at that point, back in ancient Babylon, many, many years ago. Just shortly after the time of the flood. Now, from that point, then, we get trade. We get People living in cities. If people live in cities, you need more produce to cope. It's not just one person feeding themselves or their family anymore. And it's, of course, gone on from that point. The next one is also very interesting, the, the third vial now, because now we see the rivers are turned to blood, and all that is in them is also going to die. Verse 4 says, The third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. So now we might ask, Why the rivers? Well, if the sea is the heart of commerce, then the rivers are the arteries. I just want to read this from Dr. Chuck Misley. You may remember the uh, disaster that occurred in uh, New Orleans through the hurricane um, some years ago. Well, Dr. Chuck Misley 
wrote this. He said, on its own merit, the port of South Louisiana is the largest port in the United States by tonnage and is the fifth largest in the world. It exports more than 52 million tons a year, of which more than half are agricultural products, corn, soybeans, and so on. A large proportion of U.S. agriculture flows out of the port. Furthermore, almost as much cargo, 17 million tons, comes in through the port, including not only crude oil, but chemicals and fertilizers, coal and concrete, etc. The commodity chain of the global food industry starts here, as does that of American industry. If these facilities are gone, more than simply the price of goods shifts, the very physical structure of the global economy will have to be reshaped. Just thinking about rivers, I mean, the Thames, of course, feeds London. Somewhere in the region of 40 million tons of produce are, are shipped every year through the, ton, through, the, through the Thames. And we're talking there about timber, paper, vehicles, aggregates, crude oil, petroleum products, liquefied petroleum gas, coal, metals, grain, and other dry and liquid bulk materials. But other major cities all depend upon their access through their rivers. The Seine, of course, is feeding Paris. The Tiber feeds Rome. The Rhine flows through six countries, Switzerland, Prince of Palatine of Liechtenstein, Austria, Germany, France, Netherlands, and then it flows into the North Sea at Rotterdam. Out of the 20 largest cities of Russia, 11, including Moscow, are fed from the River Volga, and many more. Now, that's a, a picture of a river in China, and it's not turned to blood, I'm not suggesting it did turn to blood, but it turned blood red, and the specialists, the scientists, all the people that came to investigate could not figure out why. You can Google it, it's on the internet. They just woke up one morning and the rivers turned blood red. And interestingly enough, it's not the only time it's happened. They, they thought, uh, the, the, some of the experts tried to say, oh, it was, it was a chemical spill. But there's no chemical plants anywhere near this river. So they're, Still trying to deliberate and find out what's going on. There was another one in Lebanon. Beirut River just mysteriously turns blood red. Now, all I say is that we tend to look at these things with our understanding and think, oh, this couldn't happen, it's impossible. Well, I'll just remind you, you're dealing with God. God can do whatever he wants. And I've, in my experience, seen too many times where man has doubted or questioned God only for God to show that man is... Uh, the one that's foolish, by not listening and trusting him. So those things may seem strange to us, but look, if this did happen, and I believe when it does happen, suddenly trade on earth is going to become a nightmare. And just think for a second as well about what we're told with grain and bread becoming more valuable than gold. That's what the Bible tells us is going to occur during this time. That was back in chapter 6. And then we get a parenthesis, effectively. We're told, and I heard the angel of the waters, seemingly someone who's qualified to talk on this, say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and was and shall be, because thou hast judged us. Because you've done it, you're righteous, God. And it's almost as if this has to be inserted in case we're thinking, but turning all the rivers and the waters to blood, isn't that a little extreme? And this angel just steps forward and says, hang on a minute, folks, listen. God is righteous in doing this. And remember, verse 6 goes on, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. They are deserving of this. Verse 7, And I heard another, another angel, 
out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. As if one angel's not enough, another one steps forward and says, Yeah, actually, by the way, folks, God is just. I've got the records. We then move on and we find the fourth vial poured out. We're told that the sun is going to heat up and men become scorched as a result of this. We read verse 8, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And we talk about global warming. Well, this is when it really happens. This is when it really kicks in. And for whatever reason, and I'm sure there will be a bunch of experts that will be on CNN and Sky News and BBC News 24 and so on that will be giving you the reasons why suddenly we've got this sudden increase in temperature but ultimately it's going to be God's wrath and God's judgment and I think what's interesting to point out here is that the men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God you see they kind of realise that God's doing this we see the same back in chapter 6 as God starts to bring judgement on the earth people recognise and realise it's God but they choose not to repent I, I, I honestly can't get my head around that. How can you be in a position where you recognize that God is the one that's in control and you just choose to turn away? Don't know. Malachi chapter 1, let me just read that to you. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud. Yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble and the day that cometh shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now it's just worth just mentioning at this point that sun worship was one of the earliest forms of paganism. It started with Nimrod on the plain of Shinar again. And so many things go back to Nimrod and we'll look at more of that in chapter 17 and 18. But you know, whatever you worship, if it's not the true God, we'll end up destroying you just as this heat here is seemingly doing. You know, we've been made for God and God is a jealous God. But Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory will I not give to another. And why should he? God is the creator. God is the one who deserves our honor and worship. And if we choose to worship something else, something man-made, something of like, like the sun, which God has made, but it's clearly... I mean, look, the world has still got this notion that the universe or our solar system was all spawned from the sun. The Bible says it wasn't. The Bible says that the earth was created before the sun. But we still have this idea that you may have heard that the nebula hypothesis, that bits kind of flew off the sun and gradually cooled and became the planets that we have and so on. Okay, well, still go ahead and explain the moon to me. Still haven't got that one figured out. But then why have we got some planets in our solar system spinning the other way around? It, I mean, it's a great theory if it all fits the facts, but it doesn't fit the facts. It just doesn't work. Because some of the planets we have spin the opposite way. Clearly, they could not have come off the sun. So it doesn't work. It's a theory that's been debunked for a long time and yet it's still often taught and suggested to be the truth. And some school textbooks will even tell you it is true. It's been proven. It's not been proven. Mathematically, there's too many problems with it. It doesn't work. So even in that, man chooses to give honour and glory to the sun rather than to God. God is going to allow the sun to bring this scorching heat on the earth. Then the fifth vial is poured out. And we're told this time... A painful darkness. Let's just read verse 10 and 11. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. And notice again, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Once again, 
God is the one that's causing this. They recognize it. They choose not to repent. Now, I just think this is interesting because Satan's kingdom effectively is where this problem occurs. A darkness is so thick, that's so almost tangible that it becomes painful. I don't know if any of you, I mean, some years ago when I was young, it was quite some years ago, um, we went to Wookie Hole. I don't know if you've been to Wookie Hole. And they turn the lights off at one point when you're down there. And it is dark. I mean, we, we think we kind of see dark, you know, at night time, lights are off and things in the house. But, you know, there's always light bleeding in from somewhere, isn't there? They say that the human eye, again, a miracle of design. But they say the human eye can detect even just a single photon of light. Well, we're in that environment and there was just no light. It was really quite eerie. Well, this is going to be the same type of thing. It's going to be scary for people. And I just think this is interesting because once again, God has already given us parallels and models in advance. Remember back in Exodus, all the plagues that were poured upon the Egyptians and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart back then. Well, in Exodus 10.21, we read there of this darkness that fell upon the land. But you know what? It didn't fall upon the Jews. Those in Goshen, the, the children of Israel, they weren't affected by it. And it's interesting because here, if you notice, this is only going to be upon Antichrist kingdom. That's where this is poured out. So seemingly for the Jews who are hiding in Edom, they still have light. It's a very strange situation. Seemingly the account in Exodus was just a dress rehearsal, getting ready for the big one. Well, then we get to the uh, the sixth vial being poured out, and we're told that the river Euphrates dries up to make way for the kings of the east. Let's just read the text. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Who are the kings of the east? Well, most Bible commentators and scholars seem to agree that these are going to be the communist nations. You know, talking about China, North Korea, and so on. It's seemingly coming to assist Antichrist at this point. This confederacy now all seemingly working together. Antichrist is going to seemingly request that they come to deal with what they perceive to be a common enemy. Surprisingly, Israel. Israel, one one thousandth of the world's population, have always been a problem for the nations of the world. But let's just look at the detail of what's going on here. Because verse 13 says, And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come up out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth, and of the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. So these evil spirits now are seemingly going to go out and deceive the kings and the nations of the world and bring them in to this situation, this battle. Now, the kings of the earth, it's not just those from the east, but the, the rest of the world as well. Now, back in First Kings, there's an interesting situation because we find the king Ahab of Israel who really didn't have uh, much regard for God, was about to go out to battle against the Syrians. And uh, Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah, comes up and they join together and they're about to go out. And Jehoshaphat says, hang on a minute, isn't there a prophet we can ask before we go out? And so, Jehoshaphat, so Ahab goes and gathers his prophets and they all say exactly what he wants to hear. And he goes, there you go, see? And Jehoshaphat says, well, yeah, but isn't there a prophet of the Lord that we could ask? And uh, Ahab says, well, yeah, there is, but I don't like him because he never says anything good. And so they go and call this Micaiah, this prophet. And Micaiah starts off by saying, well, yeah, go ahead, King Ahab, it will be wonderful and you'll have a lovely victory. And obviously Ahab realizes he's being kind of sarcastic. And so he says, go on, no, no, you must tell me the truth. 
And so he continues, he says, Hear therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this manner, another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, How? And he said, I will go forth and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of these thy prophets, and the Lord has spoken evil concerning thee. So Micaiah tells Ahab, look, God has spoken through your prophets to deceive you. And that's exactly what's going to go on here. This spiritual deception, these spirits are going to, these demonic beings are going to deceive the kings of the earth, lead them all into this ill-fated attempt. So they're going to come together in this battle. And as we carry on, we read, (coughs) verse 15, and behold, in fact, I'm going to come back to verse 15. Just give me a second. Let's just move on. Because I want to just carry on the theme here a second. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. So this is where they're being back gathered together to. We'll come back to Armageddon in, in just a second. Right, let's just return to verse 15. Because we've got a strange verse here. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and keeps his garment, lest he walks naked and they see his shame. Who is it that's being addressed? It's almost right in the middle of all this. We've got this little bit inserted. Who are those that are watching? Well, Scripture identifies them as being the church. I think this is thrown in here for you and I, right now. God is saying, okay, look, just just one second, let's put pause on this. This is a, a wake-up call to watch, to keep your garments. Don't get defiled with the things of this world. Lest you walk naked and they see your shame and so on. We should be covered with the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's just a, a, a call here, I believe, to believers right now. In the midst of all this, as we're seeing this judgment poured out upon the world. And in one sense, if you're a Christian, there's a tendency to sit back and think, well, I'm going to be watching from the mezzanine, I'm not going to really be too worried about these things. And a lot of Christians aren't even bothered about revelation and these details, sadly. Of course, God has given them to us that we would know, that we would understand. But I think this verse is here as a wake-up call to say, look, you know, you need to be watching, you need to be aware of the days in which you're living. And it should impact the way we live our lives. So again, we carry on. As I said, these kings of the earth and so on, the kings of the east are being gathered together to this place called Armageddon. Now Armageddon, very familiar term, of course it's used in the Hollywood, uh, repeatedly, of course it's linked to the end of the world, but of course it is drawn from these portions of the Bible. We'll see a bit more in chapter 19. Very often it's not associated with any specific place, but of course Megiddo is a very real place. The word Armageddon is simply from Har, which means mountain, and Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo means rendezvous, or a place of crowds. This place in Israel, just zooming in, it's a very strategic place right in the, the center of Israel. And it's this huge expanse, this plain, that you can just about see there, uh, as far as the eye can see in both directions. Now this is actually looking from Nazareth. There's a hill just at the edge of Nazareth. And it's the one seemingly that Jesus was taken up to and almost pushed over. But what's interesting is that as a boy, Jesus would have grown up, been able to walk up here and look across this 
no doubt being aware of the prophecies, that this was going to be the site, the location of the final battle, in a sense, when he would come back and establish his throne and kingdom. That's been incredible. Again, just looking from the sky, this is the hill of Megiddo, the mountain that's there. I mean, it's been a a fortress and used so many times um, in history for a number of different conquests and campaigns and, and so on. There's a number of scriptures there. These will obviously be in the notes if you want to look at them that have reference to this. And we'll talk more about Armageddon itself when we get to chapter 19 and the events that surround it there. But there's a number of occasions, and again, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I mean, it's the place where Gideon's 300 defeated the Midianites and, and so on. Samson triumphed over the Philistines and, and many, many others in, in scripture that occur there. But let's move on for the sake of time this morning. So we finally get to the last vial being poured out. And we're told these great hailstones, there's a major earthquake is now poured out. These kind of seemingly 100 pound hailstones. The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. This is the, the time this angel now pours out into the air. Why the air? Well, one answer may be because the air has been Satan's domain in a sense. Ephesians talks about Satan being the prince of the power of the air. But now, with this final vial being poured out, everything's done. The judgments are complete in that sense. And we're told and there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were on the earth. So mighty an earthquake is so great. And some scholars speculate and wonder whether this will all be some sort of nuclear exchange that will cause these things. Because apparently with nuclear fallouts, you can often get hailstones and so on as well. Many tests that have been done. There was one famous test where an American ship, warship, that was observing from a big, big distance, got absolutely peppered with these hailstones, large, large hailstones, with the fallout from a test they did somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Some years ago, you can Google that if you want to find more. Um, but again, these thunders and lightnings, this great earthquake, and we're told such as was not since men were on the earth. And the great city was divided into three parts, and that's talking of Jerusalem. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We'll talk a little bit more about Babylon in the next chapters. Now, verse 20 It's a staggering verse. If you get the implication of what this says. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Do you realize what that means? If every island disappears, what are you left with? You're left with one landmass. I think that's interesting because in the book of Genesis, we read that God created the earth originally as one landmass. And then something happened to separate it up as it is today. And of course I believe, I think scripture would teach us that that was the flood. Of course there are people that question and they doubt, doubt the flood. We live on an earth that's largely covered in water and they would doubt that there was ever a worldwide flood. And yet, trying to convince us that there was a flood once on Mars, which is a planet that has no water. So. But you know, you look at the mountains, you find marine fossils at the top of mountains... And the evidence for the flood is, I believe, overwhelming. But that aside, originally the Bible says the earth was one landmass. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3, verse 21, I believe it is, it talks about the times of restitution or restoration of all things. 
Seemingly, God is going to put the world back as it was at the beginning. We're going to read in Isaiah, we'll look at this in a few weeks' time, um, but Isaiah prophesies that during this millennial reign, when Christ has come back and set up his kingdom, everything's going to go back to as it was. And animals are not going to be vicious and meat-eating and so on. And children will be able to go and play with the, the, the snakes and lions and talks about lions and wolves and sheep and just being in harmony. It's so radically different from the world we know today. But of course it will be radically different because it won't be man that is ruling, it will be Jesus Christ that is ruling. You know, so this is interesting because it seems to suggest that through this incredible seismic catastrophe, somehow the, the continents get pushed back together. But the interesting thing is, it's just the mountains were found not. You know, People sometimes ask the question, do you think the earth was, or the, the, the continents were once connected? Well, they still are. They, they still are. It's just that the, the certain parts have sunk down, and other parts have risen up, and now water has filled those, those parts between them. What, one, one kind of the questions that often get put to people that believe the Bible is, well, how do you get animals into places like Australia? Well, because actually the ocean floor is not that far down. There's a whole interesting study you can do looking at those things, but seemingly what's going to happen is there's going to be a leveling out of the things on the earth at this time, and we're going to end up with one landmass once again. And again, there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. A talent can weigh anything from 50 to 140 pounds, depending on which culture you're referring to, whether it's Hebrew, whether it's Greek. I mean, seriously, if one of those things lands on your head, you're not really worried whether it's Hebrew or Greek. It's just not a good thing. Interestingly, the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy was stoning. And that seems to be what the people now get. They've blasphemed God through the whole of this period of time. And now the God of heaven is going to bring his judgment, applying his rules, as it were, as these hailstones are now poured out upon the earth. Interestingly, men are, even to this day, trying to reduce the population of the earth. They think the earth is overcrowded. I think the real issue is we should be trying to reduce the population of hell. We need to be speaking to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, judgment cannot produce repentance, and it's clear from those things. People are not repenting. They just get harder and harder. Pharaoh is an example of that. Of course, judgment was never intended to produce that. See, God changes hearts through his grace and through his mercy. And that's what he's doing now around the world. As millions of people are coming into the kingdom, millions of people are realizing that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. This book was sent, if you remember, to the seven churches. It was given to us in order to change our lives and the lives of people that we have the opportunity to speak to right now. Let's uh, stop there and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for these things. And although they may seem just so fantastic and beyond our comprehension as we look at them. Father, you're a God who has always revealed the truth in your word. You've never told us things that are not true. And Father, we recognize also that this world is a world that is full of wickedness and hatred. And Lord, we recognize, of course, that there have been millions who have been martyred simply for believing in Jesus. And Lord, can we really expect you to sit and do nothing? And so, Lord, as we just try and get our head around these things, help us, we pray. Help us to understand that in all of these things, you are still a good God and a just God. But most of all, you're a God who loves us so much that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, have everlasting life. Lord, that is the 
point of all of this. Lord, help us to remember that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.